It's time once again for the Go-Giver Podcast, where we explore five timeless principles that will increase the profitability of your business and the joy in your life. Now, here's your host, the co-author of The Go-Giver, Bob Berg. Hello again, I'm Bob Berg, and we have what I hope you'll find to be an interesting and value-packed show today. Have you ever tried to buy from a company and couldn't? We'll look at that in our thought of the day. And in our interview segment, Roger Dooley will take that issue to a much, much deeper level and share wisdom based on his fantastic new book. That and more on today's show. I thank you for joining us. A number of years ago, back in the day when Amazon.com pretty much only sold books, I had an experience that, while it happened with a major company, contains a basic lesson that medium and small-sized businesses alike are also wise to heed. Learning that the daughter of a family friend was graduating high school, I asked a woman whose judgment I trusted to suggest a place that a young woman would probably like to receive a gift certificate to. Being the somewhat lazy soul I am, I figured a $100 gift certificate would make up for the total lack of imagination I have in this regard, not to mention the astounding lack of interest I have in personally shopping for a gift. Suggested was a nationally known major store, one that would probably be easy for me to locate. So I searched the internet and found one right near her. Then the call was placed. It would be quick and even better, done. Not (laughs) Yes, the auto-whatever-it's-called, that thing that provides you with a bunch of departments from which to choose, none of them being the human department, was activated. After three tries, I finally pushed zero, but instead of being delivered into the safe and caring hands of an operator who would then send me to the order department, I was informed that, apparently for the privilege of speaking with a real person, I must first enter my customer number. Huh? With a bit of confusion mixed with frustration, I gently hung up the phone and wrote the young graduate a check and sent it to her in the mail. Sure, it was just one $100 order for that very large company, but I can't imagine I'm the only one who had that type of experience. Now, while that did happen a long time ago, too many companies even today still make it difficult for their customers to buy, whether online or through other processes that seem to serve the company bureaucracy more than they do the customer. Make it easy for people to do business with you. Sounds simple enough. But the person we're going to hear from next begins his powerful book, and will share with us in this interview that substantial, and I mean mega-substantial, amounts of money are left on the table because the difficulty to do business with that company was greater than the benefits of doing so. Our guest calls this friction, and I believe you'll want to pay close attention to the wisdom he shares. Then get his book because it's amazing and way beyond just a business perspective. He shows us that friction can cause issues that extend into every aspect of one's life. The good news, of course, is that once you're aware of this, you can take the necessary steps to turn that weakness into one of your biggest strengths, business-wise or otherwise. Back with the amazing Roger Dooley right after this. Pick up John David Manns and my newest book, The Go-Giver Influencer. Set in the same fictional city as the first two Go-Giver books, it features two young, ambitious business people, 
Jillian Waters, chief buyer for a national chain of pet accessory stores, and Jackson Hill, founder of a small but growing manufacturer of all-natural pet foods. Each has something the other wants. To Jackson, it's the possibility of reaching more animals if he can negotiate terms that will protect his company's integrity. To Jillian, it's about giving her company a distinct competitive advantage in the marketplace if she can persuade Jackson to give them an exclusive. Of course, there's a surprise ending. Marshall Goldsmith says this may be the most important go-giver book yet and adds that in today's polarized world, it could not be more timely. Read the first two chapters of The Go-Giver Influencer by visiting thegogiver.com or just click the link in the show notes. Roger Dooley is a recognized expert in the use of brain and behavioral research to improve marketing, sales, customer experience, and corporate culture. He writes the popular blog Neuromarketing as well as a column at Forbes.com. He's founder of Dooley Direct, a consultancy, and co-founded College Confidential, the leading college-bound website. A highly sought-after international keynote speaker, his two main websites are Roger Dooley, that's with an E-Y at the end.com, and NeuroscienceMarketing.com. Both will be in the show notes. Roger's first book was the very popular Brainfluence. I enjoyed that one very much. His new book is entitled Friction, the untapped force that can be your most powerful advantage. Direct site for that is rogerdooley.com slash friction. But of course, again, that and all the URLs I just mentioned will have direct links in the show notes. So check those out. It's his new book, Friction, that we're going to discuss today. And the one thing that makes me feel uncomfortable in interviewing an author of a book such as this is that there is so much fantastic information in it, and we're only going to get to a smidge. But this is really, really good stuff. So enjoy this conversation and then get the book. Hi, Roger. Welcome. Well, thanks so much for having me on the show, Bob. It's a real pleasure. Oh, pleasure's mine. The the essence of your work, and I've been following you for quite a while now, on a, a foundational level, I would say it's applying brain and behavioral science to world, real world business problems. Uh, first, do I have that right? And if so, break that down for us, if you will. Right. Yeah, that's, it's really true. I'm trying always uh, base my advice on either science or data as opposed to merely anecdotal evidence. I mean, anecdotes are good. I've got a lot of anecdotes uh, in my new book uh, because they can bring an idea to life. Uh, but I always try and find some kind of a uh, scientific or evidence-based, if you will, underpinning for my uh, mm -hmm. recommendations. Yeah. So friction, Let, let's begin with the obvious question. How do you define friction? Why is it so important for us to really, really grasp this concept? Well, I guess um, I've got a slightly lengthier definition in the book, but uh, simply put, it is the unnecessary expenditure of effort to perform a task. Okay, that, and that, uh, that's, that's, that's a that's very good. short definition. That, that is a short definition, yeah, yeah because you, you do go into detail. And it has a much higher price than people recognize, doesn't it? Definitely. And, you know, there are so many examples. I think uh, a few of my favorite ones are uh, the $4.6 trillion worth of abandoned merchandise and e-commerce shopping carts every mm -hmm. year. Uh, and if you look at the reasons for that abandonment, why did people uh, leave that there? Uh, the majority of those are frictional in nature, a complicated checkout process, mm -hmm. the need to set up an account to complete an order, uh, surprises at the very end, uh, things like that that aren't necessary, but um, uh, they dissuade customers from completing the deal. And you think of all the money that went into getting those customers there, mm -hmm. you know, the SEO, the uh, uh, pay-per-click advertising, the social media marketing, the content marketing, 
uh, and then to not get them quite far enough uh, yeah. to have them bail out before they finish. So that's that's one big one. Yeah, I, well, I was bragging about your book this morning to someone over coffee, and, and they said, give me one example. And I, I gave that example right there. And he said, oh, yeah, I, I do that all the time. And I said, yeah, I've done it myself. And I bet just about everyone listening to this is saying, yeah, I've done that myself. Well, Bob, I'll, 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 go, I'll go you one better. Here's an example that's not in the book uh, that I, uh, it's a piece of data that I ran across because uh, many of us have customers who are millennials or Gen Zers, uh, and they are certainly the, uh, uh, the growing part of the market, uh, and they are more likely than any other group to be dissuaded uh, by friction. In fact, uh, one survey showed that 38% said that they had stopped setting up an online account because it was either uh, too complicated or too time-consuming. That's interesting because I'd have thought it would be the opposite because I figured they just know their stuff. I'm fair. I'm 61 and I'm not the most techie person anyway. And I know there's a lot of people like me. So I figure, okay, I can understand that. I would think the, the youngins that would not happen. But then again, maybe they're not willing to put up with friction. Because no, they're, it, they're more it, impatient. They have higher right. expectations. Okay. That's, that's a good thought. I had not, I had not thought of that. So there are many aspects of the book that where friction comes into play, um, but I want to talk business right now. And and the first major example was Amazon.com, which seems an obvious one, but you got real into it. And you talked about Jeff Bezos. His major intent seems to be winning through making the customer experience much less friction-based. Correct? Is that it in a nutshell? Yeah, that's, I mean, he has a lot of uh, smart strategies. He's not a, a single strategy guy, but way back in 1997, he was talking about frictionless shopping when most of the folks were still trying to figure out what e-commerce was. And, and that's where it started. Uh, the year after that, they patented one-click ordering, which at the time I recall hearing about that saying, oh, you can't p patent that. They defended that uh uh, spent a ton of money, but they won. They retained the patent. They forced uh, Barnes & Noble and all other competitors to add a click to their process. Now, you just think, well, one little click in a process, a lot of us uh, have online processes, whether it's a checkout or anything else, requesting information. We don't think about, gee, well, one little tiny click could make a difference. But uh, mm -hmm. uh, for Bezos, it's worth uh, millions of dollars in legal fees uh, to defend that. Uh, and uh, another great example is uh, about a dozen years or so ago, Bob, uh, they noticed that their customers were struggling with these retail packages, uh, like, you know, these blister packs, uh, clamshells that you get at the, uh, say, Walmart or something that are pretty, but they're very hard to get into without tools. Mm -hmm. And uh, you even risk stabbing yourself. Well, uh, they decided to do something about it and uh, created frustration-free packaging, simple cardboard packaging that does not require uh, any tools to get into. It's better for the environment. And what happened was, uh, not only do people like the packaging, there were 73% fewer negative comments about those products. Mm. So the ease in opening translated into liking the product itself better, Bob. So you started the book with a, with a, like a seven, as I recall, about a seven page or so parable short story, which was really cool. And it ended with us, the reader, basically getting a pair of goggles, not literal goggles. You didn't include those with the book, but figurative goggles. And those goggles, they're, they're kind of friction goggles. And they worked for me because 
since reading the book, I, it actually it was before I even read it because it was just as I was even starting, I think, uh, first, second chapter, I started to see and experience these examples of friction everywhere I, I went, which is a really good thing because I, I'm glad I see them now because they cause me to ask what we might be doing in our company that causes friction for our customers, clients, and prospects who might never become customers or clients if they continue to experience this, this friction. Um we're going to, I think everyone who reads the book is going to start seeing that, right? And is that by design? Yes. And uh, well, first of all, Bob, I have to uh, thank you uh, in part for the inspiration for that piece of the book, because uh, your own go-giver is written in the form of a fable or parable or whatever you want to call it. <laughs> and, uh, you know, that taught me that this could be an interesting uh, approach. I've never, I, uh, tried a few others, uh, books written in that style and they didn't quite uh, grab me, but uh, yours did, and uh, I thought that would be a great way to start. Uh, but as far as the goggles themselves, the uh, uh, there's a, uh, some actually some neuroscience there. Uh, I say people will get these goggles after they read the book, or even uh, after they hear me speak someplace. Uh, and it's uh, a part. Uh, it's a process in your brain called your uh, uh, reticular activating system. And that filters out uh, things that aren't important. So if you want to cross Times Square, it filters out everything uh, except oncoming cars and the crosswalk indicator and people around you uh, and ignores the tens of thousands of other stimuli that it could be looking at. Uh, and what happens is um, uh, if when something becomes important to your brain or after you s start seeing it, you start seeing more of it. If you've ever bought a new car and suddenly started seeing cars that look like yours everywhere that you never saw before, they were there. It's just that your brain was filtering them out. So uh, my friction goggle concept is that once I activate uh, uh, your RAS, that you will start seeing friction. And the more, actually, the more you see, uh, you'll continue to see even mm -hmm. more because it becomes, your brain is more and more attuned to it. Yeah, that makes sense. Um, I want to read something you you wrote at the uh, end of, of chapter two uh, and then have you explain it because I think it can really uh, transfer to to the small business person, to the salesperson, the entrepreneur, you know, the people who are who are listening. Uh, and here's what you wrote. If you can find a part of your market, your targeted market, that has difficulty doing business with your competitors, attack their first before meeting them head on. And this was in regards to what you wrote about Sears, Montgomery Wards, and eventually Walmart. Would you break that down? Yeah, um, you know, I think uh, it's probably a classic military strategy. You never attack your opponent uh, at uh, uh, their strongest point. Always try and find a flank or a weak spot. Uh, and in the sense of exploiting friction, what it has to do is find some segment of your customer base or uh, your desired customer base that uh, it has difficulty doing business with uh, your competition. So um, originally Montgomery Wards and then uh, shortly after that Sears uh, started off as catalog businesses because uh, rural customers uh, had difficulty dealing with department stores. They'd have to travel to the city, which would be uh, in many cases a lengthy trip mm -hmm. uh, and then pay department store prices. Uh, and the only other alternative if they wanted to shop locally uh, were small general stores that right. typically were buying from the department stores, so their pricing uh, was very unattractive. Mm -hmm. uh, and they, by uh, starting a catalog business and delivering via mail delivery, uh, they managed to build a significant rural base. 
they weren't in the big cities yet, uh, but they were building a, a very large business based on customers that were not that close to uh, department stores. Eventually, when they got big enough, uh, they did move into cities and in the suburbs in particular, where the department stores tended to be strong downtown, uh, they saw that the suburbs were the growth areas. And so again, they picked a spot where they were, their competition was a little bit weaker uh, and uh, offered free parking, among other things, which, of course, is it's tougher to park downtown. And, uh, again, exploited uh, this friction by making it easier for uh, their customers to do business with them than their competition. And, of course, eventually they became uh, as strong or even bigger. Uh, and Walmart did pretty much the same thing. Uh, they uh, saw that these rural areas were served uh, mainly by mail order at the time. And so they started opening up actual stores in those areas. Uh, and uh, that enabled them to build up strength over time. And now, of course, they're the world's largest retailer. Yeah, exactly. So the bureaucracy of business at times seems to create friction. That's by its very nature as they start to get bigger, right? So, uh, and then not to mention stifling government regulations that are often very unnecessary and actually harmful to both the operators and the consumer. So along comes outsiders, uh, you know, and I think we're all, we all probably think Uber and Lyft and, um, and they sort of, I guess they're the ones that see the problem in, in, innovate is that just human nature that these things come from? and then there's you know you think of carmax who's totally redefined in a sense much of the the industry what what is the i guess psychology behind that and and would that be a, a great example of just reducing friction finding a, a better way sure i think there are two things that inhibit innovation uh, within an industry uh, first of all, uh, the existing players often have vested interests in uh, uh, right. how it's done at the moment. So if you're a taxi operator, uh, you have a vested interest in keeping that uh, uh, medallion monopoly in place because mm -hmm. it's your benefit. Uh, if you're Kodak, you want to keep a film going uh, because that's where you make all your money. Uh, and so uh, even though Kodak actually knew a lot about digital photography, it was tough for them to really uh, build that into a business. In many cases, now not all innovations are friction reducers. I mean, sometimes it's just a new technology or new product, but um, the uh, things like uh, Uber, for example, uh, took friction out of the taxi process that people didn't even see. People might occasionally complain about how hard it was to find a taxi when it was raining or something, but it was pretty much accepted by everybody. Uh, their RAS, if you will, was uh, screening it out because it's just normal, okay? A, a, a regular taxi ride was just a regular taxi ride. It wasn't until Uber showed how easy it could be both to hail a ride uh, to get where you're going, track where you're going, know when you're going to get there, and then pay without doing anything at all, that suddenly people saw how high in friction the taxi uh, industry was. But uh, that innovation almost always comes from outside. Yeah. And okay, so, and so I want to pick up on that. And I want to talk about CarMax, because one of the things you mentioned is that a CarMax car uh, is more typically a little more expensive than most other used car dealers, and they generate more profit per car than other publicly traded dealers. Here's the money shot I, I took from the, or the money quote I took from your book. Quote, customers are willing to pay a little more at CarMax because buying a car there is easier, less friction, easier, and less stressful than the alternatives. And I'd even opine, Roger, if I may, that depending upon the product or service, they'll pay significantly more if an element of what we call an element of value you provide is, is much less friction, if that's something that that particular customer holds to be of value. 
Yeah, I, I totally agree. And I think in the in the CarMax example, uh, they were able to uh, make the process easier by, first of all, having a fixed price setup, uh, creating a showroom that was a lot like a new car showroom. Uh, they, uh, the salesperson could be more of an advocate or an advisor for the customer rather than uh, somebody playing a zero-sum game where they're trying to maximize their commission and the customer's trying to get the cheapest price. Uh, and that made the process so much easier that people liked it and they grew and grew and grew. Uh, the people who started it were not from the auto industry. They were from Circuit City, uh, the mm -hmm. big electronics mm -hmm. retailer. Mm -hmm. And the parallel between those industries, years before, consumer electronics was populated with a lot of kind of sketchy businesses. Uh, you know, Crazy Louie's uh, right, uh, exactly. store that would uh, sell you TVs and you go in there and, uh, oh, the one you want to see uh, isn't working right now, but we've got this other model here. Uh, they created a very level playing field uh, that, you know, customers could enjoy. And uh, they decided to take that to the car industry. And when you can make things easier, uh, people will pay more. And, you know, my own example, Bob, is uh, Amazon. Um, a few years ago, uh, state of Texas and Amazon worked a deal where uh, they began charging sales tax. And that was an 8% price increase for me right out of the gate. My prices went up on everything I bought from Amazon, 8%. Uh, other online vendors, I was not paying that. Uh, and I said, well, okay, uh, I'm probably going to shop around more. In fact, I d determined that I would shop around more because I don't want to, I'd be stupid to pay 8% extra, right? Uh, but nevertheless, uh, I found when I look back a year or two later, my buying behavior had not changed much at all. And the reason for that is uh, it was just so easy to right. do business with Amazon. Right. I mean, they always uh, remember who you are. Uh, half the websites I go to, uh, you know, forget who I am. I've got to log in. Uh, sometimes mm -hmm. they log me out automatically even. Uh, and all these horrible things. Amazon always recognized me. That one-click button is always there waiting for me. And it's just so easy uh, and, you know, they're very reliable and it's a, it's a very low friction process. And that difference was enough uh, for me to keep shopping with them. You know, I would guess most purchases that I make, if I really shopped on, say, eBay, uh, I could find a cheaper price for that product. Not always, but much of the time. Uh, but I don't do it because uh, for it's so much easier to do business with Amazon. Uh, and uh, there's also a high level of trust there. Mm -hmm. uh, okay. Okay. Real quickly before we move on, because there's a couple more points I just so want to get to. Uh, there are times when when you will utilize friction, correct? Now, you, you do it on purpose. There, there's got to be a purpose for it. But sometimes friction will actually serve. Give us an example of that. Well, friction can be used to steer behavior. In other words, if uh, there are option uh, options A and B, and you would prefer somebody to choose uh, option A, then you can make option B a little bit more difficult. Uh, and uh, sometimes even a fric friction contrast works. And one of my favorite stories is uh, a friend of mine has a conversion optimization business, and he uh, had a client who could take either phone leads or web leads from a web form. And what the client found was that the phone leads were much more productive. They were able to close deals on much more of them. So they mm -hmm. said, hey, uh, uh, get us more phone leads. So... Uh, they said, okay, well, that's probably simple enough. Uh, if we simply take the web form away, uh, then those, maybe not 100%, but those uh, many of those people who would have filled out the form will just now call in. In fact, they were surprised when that number went down. Uh, people, did, the number of phone leads went down when there was, uh, that was the only method. Now, they couldn't really explain exactly why, but maybe it was that people felt they were being forced to call. So instead, they set up uh, 
uh, a new web form that was horrendously long. Uh, it had lots and lots of fields. It looked terrible. Uh, and they introduced it by saying, uh, you know, we can take care of you more quickly if you call. If you prefer, though, uh, feel free to fill out this form and then we will get back to you. Uh, and what happened then was nobody filled out their horrible long form, but uh, instead the phone number phone leads did go up. Mm -hmm. uh, and so it was, it was that uh, appearance of friction where uh, the phone option at that point seemed so much easier uh, than the other option. And so people called in. Okay. Now, I uh, grew up about 20 minutes outside of Boston, and I, I'm a child of the 70s. And at about that time, Route 128, which is sort of a, a circle, if you will, around Boston, it's actually 95 uh, that goes south all the way to Florida from Maine, but it, it, Route 128 is what it is up there, was known as the technology belt, basically, okay? And it was growing. All the technology companies were coming there. But there's this other place people may have heard of called Silicon Valley, <laughs> which, as you uh, highlighted in the book, actually grew a lot more than than did 128. And it brings up the question, Roger, what does trust have to do with friction? Right. Well, uh, Annalise Axanian of Berkeley uh, did a lot of the research on that uh, and uh, published it uh, years ago, uh, even before the uh, internet boom. But uh, uh, when Silicon Valley had already uh, become the dominant center for uh, chip and electronics and PC technology, uh, and uh, trust uh, has trust is almost a lubricant, if you will, uh, and reduces friction in many processes. Uh, if you do not trust somebody, you will probably write a detailed contract specifying exactly what performance constitutes. You'll have all kinds of uh, uh, provisions in it. You know, if this goes wrong, if that goes wrong. Uh, and first of all, creating those contracts uh, is time consuming. Uh, it is uh, having a detailed contract like that further reduces trust. Uh, and then often uh, people try and enforce that contract, say, well, gee, they didn't do uh, X, so now I'm going to uh, take them to court. Uh, in uh, Silicon Valley, there was a much uh, freer wheeling atmosphere where people were willing to do business uh, much more informally. Uh, instead of developing everything in-house, uh, uh, they would deal with vendors who dealt with their competitors. Uh, and that may seem like a bad, that seemed like a bad idea in Boston, but uh, in Silicon Valley, it enabled these vendors to uh, develop expertise and help uh, companies, and in particular, help young companies and startups uh, get up to speed faster, uh, as opposed to uh, in Massachusetts, where typically, if you were going to start up a business, you were doing it on your own from scratch. So, uh, and even employees, uh, uh, people did not try and enforce employment contracts in Silicon Valley. It was pretty much accepted that you could migrate from company to company. If you were the startup and it failed, there was no stigma. You just went on to the next thing. Uh, and people consider themselves alumni of companies where, mm -hmm, uh, mm -hmm. you know, you can't generalize completely, but in Route 128, uh, it was more, uh, gee, that person left left there a traitor. Uh, so, uh, you know, it's, uh, uh, that trust goes a long way to, um, smoothing out friction. Yeah. Well, I'll tell you what, there is so much in this book. It just breaks my heart that we've got to end this interview because I, I just, uh, this really, uh, this, this book really touched me. I know, yeah, it's a business book. It's the brain science and why this and that, but I got to tell you, this was just an absolutely 
fantastic read, and I, I hope everyone uh, I hope everyone gets this book. Roger Dooley is author of Friction, the untapped force that can be your most powerful advantage. You can find out more at rogerdooley.com slash friction. That link will be in the show notes or, or order the book directly on Amazon or wherever you'd like, but there's less friction on Amazon. But I can't recommend it highly enough. This is information we really all need to know. And as I mentioned earlier, once you begin reading this book, you'll not only see examples everywhere, you won't be able to unsee them. And that's that turns out to be really good. You'll also be able to recognize them more easily in your own business and personal life, which is also a, a, a good thing. Roger also, by the way, uh, he's a very much sought after keynote speaker. So uh, check out the uh, link to his speaking page on the show notes as well. Wouldn't this be a great topic to feature at your next company convention? His two main websites, rogerdooley.com and neurosciencemarketing.com are also in the show notes. And be sure and check out his podcast and his blog. Roger, huge congrats again, and I wish you much continued success. Well, Bob, thanks so much for having me on the show. I really appreciate it. It's been a blast. Main takeaway I received from Roger is that the easier you make it for people to do business with you, the greater the chances they'll do business with you. <laughs> what did you learn from Roger that you can begin applying immediately in order to make the experience your customers have with you frictionless? Please feel free to write to me at bob at berg.com and let me know. All of John David Mann's and my books in the Go-Giver series can be found at thegogiver.com where you can download chapters one and two or just click on the link in the show notes. If you enjoyed this episode, please subscribe, rate, and provide a review on iTunes. Visit thegogiver.com slash reviews. I enjoy reading every review, and your review will also help others to much more easily find this show. That's all for today. The Go-Giver podcast is brought to you by thegogiver.com. Visit www.thegogiver.com and get our free special report, Endless Prospects, The Go-Giver Way. That's thegogiver.com. Stop on by. Thank you so much for joining me. And until next time, I'm Bob Berg. Make it a great day.